0: Hello, welcome to episode number 132 of Turkey Book Talk, our first episode of 2021. Happy New Year. I'm William Armstrong and in this episode we hear from Ömer Tashpinar. He's professor at the US National War College and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and the author of What the West is Getting Wrong About the Middle East, Why Islam is Not the Problem, published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. The book makes a short, sharp argument that the US and Europe often fundamentally misunderstand social and political trends in the Middle East, overemphasising the importance of Islam at the expense of much more important economic governance and institutional factors. It makes this case very convincingly I think by looking at the examples of Turkey, the Sunni-Shia divide and the emergence of ISIS. We address all these in the conversation as well as what lies ahead of Turkey-US relations as we all wait for Joe Biden to start his tenure as president. But before we get started, let me remind you that you can support the podcast by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Membership gets you a number of extras including transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive including a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. I'm still waiting confirmation of our updated IB Taurus Bloomsbury discount deal for 2021 so I won't list that here just yet hopefully that update will be finalized shortly of course I'll let you know as soon as it is but as a member you do also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry history politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe Finally, I also send links to articles and other content related to the subject in the email that I send out to members with every new episode, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Omer Tashpinar. I started by asking him what triggered him to write the book.
1: I've been teaching a uh, graduate course at uh, John Subkins in Washington, D.C. at uh, the School of Advanced International Studies uh, on Europe and Islam since 2003. So I began teaching shortly after 9-11. And I realized that 9-11 turned Samuel Huntington's clash of civilization scenario into a kind of perceived reality. Sometimes I call it a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy because no one took the clash of civilizations theory very seriously. But after 9 9- 11, all of a sudden, there emerged this sense that the West and Islam, so to speak, were on a uh, collision course. And I I realized that, you know, the idea that Islam is not only the problem, but also the solution turned to be this kind of powerful idea in the eyes of even progressive people who uh, usually did not used to focus on Islam as the main problem, but they started talking about the need for moderate Islam, the need for a reform in Islam. And these were views based on the idea that, you know, Islam as a religion is different than Christianity because it is a more political religion. It is more prone to violence, perhaps, uh, because you have a Islamic terrorism, Islamist terrorism or jihadism, whatever you call it. And uh, therefore uh, the 9-11 attacks and Al-Qaeda was the embodiment of this Islamist terrorism. So people unavoidably started looking at the Quran, the holy book, and to to try to understand the linkages between terrorism and Islam, which is understandable when you have a terrorist organization which claims to be doing all this in the name of religion, in the name of Islam. But what really was even more polarizing, in my opinion, for relations between the Europe, United States, and the Middle East, uh, especially, was this idea that Islam is not just a violent religion, but it's also the source of all problems in terms of democratization, the need for secularism, or gender equality, modernization. So Islam all of a sudden came to be seen as the heart of the problem. And I realized this in my courses, even with progressive students in their mid twenties, they would be surprised that uh in my course on Europe and Islam I would not include a, a session on uh on the Quran or on, on theology. So that triggered my interest into reading more about Orientalism Edward Said and this notion that you know the West has a certain bias and the West has a certain way of looking at the Middle East so I included a chap a, a, in my syllabus a, a topic on Edward Said and Orientalism Western perceptions of Islam historically I did not think of turning this into a book until strangely enough I had this idea that I should write something on Turkey because I realized that Erdogan's perception in 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 the west increasingly was one of an islamist rather than a nationalist and that triggered my interest in nationalism rather than islam as the main problem not just in turkey but in the middle east and so i pitched the idea to my publisher saying i want to write something about the west overstating islam at the expense of nationalism focused on turkey because erdogan in my opinion more than a uh, classical term islamist is more of a uh, a nationalist that is using religion uh, very skillfully in his is uh regional and domestic uh, agenda And the publisher liked it, but they said, you know, if you want to be more ambitious, can you apply this theory to the larger context of the Middle East, uh, overstating Islam at the expense of nationalism, which you consider to be the real issue, to other examples? And I said, yes, I'll look at uh, the Sunni-Shi'ite sectarian conflict. And there is a nationalist dimension there between Persian and Arab nationalism. It's not a theological religious war, in my opinion, this sectarianization. And also ISIS, uh, the Islamic State, Daesh, the, the jihadist organization, Organization, Yes, it is about Islam, but it has also a very strong Sunni nationalist dimension based on Arab nationalism against, again, what they perceive as Shiite Persian nationalism. And finally, uh, I'm sorry, I'm giving you a long answer. I also decided to add uh, governance as, in, as an additional lens, the kind of notion that we need to focus on institutions and politics and uh, how countries are governed rather than religion to understand the Middle East and to understand Turkey. So it was my attempt to challenge this kind of culturalist, religion-oriented tendency to overstate Islam by bringing in a different lens, a lens of focus on nationalism and institutions and governance, especially socioeconomic dynamics that were at the heart of most issues the West misunderstands in in the Middle East. So that's the genesis of the book.
0: You say in the book that, quote, many European and american policymakers analysts and journalists focus almost exclusively on Islam without paying attention to political economic and social drivers of tension and conflict the problems behind autocracy radicalism and underdevelopment in large parts of the middle east have much more to do with politics and institutional failures than with religion talk of identity politics religion culture and civilization take up all the oxygen in the room western disconnect heavily overstates religion sectarian identity and theology somehow very obvious polit- political, economic and social factors get short shrift. Just uh, open that up for us a bit.
1: Well, when people look at the Middle East from a Western angle, what they see is primarily a different religion and that religion with the revolution in Iran the islamic revolution the arrival of a uh, theocratic regime in Iran and uh the fact that saudi arabia is a uh, wahhabi sect and uh, the islamization in turkey under erdogan these are like daily journalistic analysis of what's going on in the middle east and it they all emphasize islam they all say you know Islam is at the heart of what's going on. Even after the Arab Spring, when the Muslim Brotherhood came to power, there was a sense that, okay, here here we go again. Islam is coming to power. Islam is once again defining the region. So that's what I mean by Islam taking all the oxygen in the room. Add to that 9-11 and uh, ISIS and uh, the perception of a kind of jihad factory in Europe with the second generation and third generation Muslims turning into jihadists and this notion that Europe is turning, into Arabia, this literature that even historians who, who should know better, like Bernard Lewis, who fueled this idea that, you know, there will be a kind of demographic change in, in, in France, in, in Belgium, in Germany, uh, UK. This alarmism, sensationalism about Islam was something that I was paying attention to. In an attempt, since I work also at Brookings, in an attempt to bring a policy dimension to this, I wondered how can you convey to policymakers, to analysts, to journalists that the facade of Islam is just a facade; that behind Islam there are real political, social, economic problems. I don't want to say, you know, Islam doesn't matter. It matters. Culture matters. But on the other hand, there was so much focus on uh, religion and culture. I decided that it is time to write something which both analysts, readers, uh, but also policymakers could, could use in in unveiling this kind of reality that Islam is just part of the problem, but not the real problem for academics uh for people who work on the middle east this is already common knowledge i mean i am preaching to the choir when i criticize orientalism or this mindset that you know islam is the problem uh, because most i think academics especially progressive academics in the west uh, know that islam is part of the picture but not the real problem they they've paid attention to institutional national uh, sectarian tensions that cannot be explained explained just by islam But there was a need to to simplify this, to distill it in a kind of uh, simpler argument. The West understands, in my opinion, nationalism because the West is a product of nationalism, the nation state. Yet, when the West looks at the Middle East, it doesn't see nationalism; it sees religion. So that's why I picked nationalism as the alternative to look at the region. So, in a sense, what, what you've read, William, it was my attempt to say it's th- it's about time we focus on the larger picture and go beyond just culture, beyond arguments like there is a Muslim DNA, there is a Muslim mindset or an Arab mindset, and the ties than lazy question of is Islam compatible with democracy? or does Islam fuel violence, this idea of a monolithic Islam there, immutable, unchangeable, that is basically this almost family curse that the region has, <laughs> that it cannot really go beyond, that Islam defines everything about Muslims. Uh, so this was my attempt to just question the, the premise, the assumptions that we have in the West when we look at the Middle East.
0: You argue that uh, Turkey really demonstrates the fallacy of overstating Islam. So this idea of secular versus religious as being like the fundamental divide throughout decades in Turkish politics is very simplistic and reductionist. But we still constantly see this uh, analysis abroad and sometimes inside Turkey itself. You know, Erdogan as an Islamist ideologue moving forward step by step with this religious agenda and burying the purely secular legacy of Ataturk. That's a very popular kind of narrative, but uh, obviously very simplistic.
1: Sure. The West, I think, has a certain understandable love affair with Ataturk and secularism and modernization and a tendency to romanticize the emergence of modern Turkey, the Republic. And that fits into the picture of Islam bad, secularism good, enlightenment associated with Kemalism. This was something that always, to me, seemed a little bit simplistic in terms of understanding Turkey, because I always had a problem with defining Turkey as really, a truly secular state. And as I read about the Ottoman Empire, I realized that there are there's much more continuity than meets the eye between the Ottoman Empire and and modern Turkey. Uh, the discontinuity is in the creation of a nation state. But the Ottoman Empire was in many ways not a theocratic empire. It had also a kind of secular political tradition, and this continued with the Turkish uh, state. But it's not secularism as we know it. It's not separation of church and state in the Western sense. It's uh, similar to the French model of you know, militant control of religion by the state. And the Ottomans had that too. I mean, the Ottomans had a system whereby the bureaucracy, the political tradition, the Sultan controlled Islam. When there was a clash between the Sultan and the religious hierarchy, the ulama, the religious class, the, the head of the religious establishment, the of Islam, it was always the views of the Sultan, the political tradition, raison d'etat, as we call it in French, that prevailed over religion. And that continued with Turkey, with the Turkish tradition too. I mean, what we call secularism in Turkey is, is tradition of basically state control of religion. The Diyanet in Turkey, which is the ministry of religion, if you will, is kind of continuity with the Ottoman tradition of trying to control the Sunni establishment. What what changed, as I mentioned, is, is nationalism, the idea that you have to create a Turkish nation. And ironically, secularism helped that. Secularism did not really help to separate religion and state, but secularism turned into a kind of nationalist way of looking at things in Turkey, because there was this perception that Islam is a pan-Islamic venture, that Islam is against secularism and nationalism, because it's about the ummah, it's about the religious community. Community, and secularism would help to create a Turkish nation state. And that created a paradox where the Ottoman Empire had much more tolerant and inclusive relations with the non-Muslim communities of the empire. Greeks, Armenians, Jews were often integrated within the bureaucracy. There were Armenian ambassadors, Greek diplomats. Jewish bureaucrats. Whereas with the new Turkey, with the emergence of modern republic, this secularism became a kind of important notion. But discrimination against non-Muslims, Greeks, Jews, Armenians, whatever was left of these communities, reached levels that were never there in the Ottoman Empire. So ironically, the secular, the supposedly secular Turkish Republic was much less secular when it came to its treatment of non-Muslims than the Ottoman Empire. So that was a historic dilemma, which was not really appreciated by the West. There was this sense that, you know, Ataturk brought democracy and, and liberalism and secularism to what was a kind of Islamist theocracy, Islamic theocracy. So that I wanted to challenge. Then with Erdogan, Erdogan came to be seen as this kind of anti-Ataturk, especially by people in the West or some Turkish analysts in the West who started talking about really Erdogan as some someone who's challenging secularism in Turkey. And there's an element of truth to that. I mean, all conventional wisdom emerges as conventional wisdom for a reason. But in my opinion, people missed uh, the fact that Erdogan, in fact, was using nationalism much more skillfully than than, than religion and uniting the Turks behind this kind of nationalist but also religious narrative. So in my opinion, he was misunderstood by Westerners. What was emerging in Turkey was basically even the so-called secularist Kemalists to a certain degree lining behind Erdogan in the name of a strong Turkey, in the name of an independent Turkey, sovereign Turkey. So once again, Erdogan was using a, a very strong narrative of nationalism, which a lot of people misconstrued as, as religion. And finally, to understand today's Turkey, I argue in the book, Look at the problems in Turkey. The Kurdish problem, the problem regarding Turkey-EU relations, Turkish-Russian relations, Turkey-US. Of course, the Fetullah gulen erdogan rivalry. None of these can be explained with Islam versus secularism. They can be explained, however, with nationalism. Kurdish nationalism versus Turkish nationalism. Turkish nationalism versus Russian nationalism. Governance problems. The state tradition of Turkey is in continuity. It's an autocratic state tradition. The Kemalist era was as autocratic as it is today. So there's a lot of continuity in Turkey, in the state tradition, in this illiberal state tradition, which can be explained by the absence of really a very powerful private sector in Turkey, a very powerful business community that can challenge the state, which can be explained by continuities in in the political culture of the country, state-oriented, state-dominated, autocratic, sometimes totalitarian political culture. So these were some of the dynamics that led me to question this notion of Erdogan the Islamists that is destroying the democratic secular legacy of Atatürk.
0: Yeah, you talk in the book about nationalism being the most powerful driver in Turkish politics that really unites the majority of Turks and, um, you know, Erdogan uses Turkish nationalism infused with religion and he shifts political alliances based on opportunistic calculations. So really, more than an incorrigible Islamist ideologue, he's in fact, you argue, a populist Machiavellian with no rigid ideological convictions. And that I think is true, but it certainly goes against at least some of the talk that we see about Erdogan in, in Europe and the US these days.
1: It does, uh, and there's a tendency to portray Islam as the new, uh, as Erdogan as someone who is very principled, an ideologue. But when you look at the 20 years of AKP and Erdogan's career as first prime minister, now president, you see how easily he can shift his alliances. And is, if you want to be polite, is pragmatic. If you want to be realistic, is Machiavellian, in my opinion. He can really change his coalitions quickly. However, having said that, there is something in the coalition that he established with the MHP now, with the nationalists, and with the Turkish general staff uh, since the failed coup attempt, there's something in this coalition, this Turkish nationalist and conservative religious coalition, which is sometimes called Turkish Islamic synthesis, which has its roots in the 70s, that is more, much more organic than the previous coalitions, previous Machiavellian coalitions that Erdogan established with Kurds or liberals or Fetullah Gulen. Remember, when he came to power in, 19, in, in 2003, many pro-E. EU liberal intellectuals supported Erdogan. That was not a very natural alliance. And it kind of uh, fell apart as uh, the Turkey-EU relations also were derailed in the post-2010 era. Definitely after the Gezi Park protests, uh, even more so. Uh, his coalition with the Kurds, the peace process in Turkey, that was also an unnatural coalition because it was a Machiavellian attempt to secure the, a presidential system with the support of the Kurdish population of Turkey in the name of really uh, solving the Kurdish problem with some cultural and some cultural political rights. He was hoping that the HDP and uh, Abdullah Hojalan would support the presidential agenda. And it was derailed once again when Selahattin Demirtaş made it clear that this is an authoritarian government and that they're not negotiating in good faith. Yet what he has established with David Bahçeli since 2015, Erdogan, is, I think, a uh, much more natural, harmonious, organic partnership because it has nationalism at its base. And Erdogan is much more comfortable, much more at home with a nationalist narrative infused with some religiosity, some references to the Ottoman Empire. But even his conceptualization of the Ottoman Empire or the caliphate, if you will, is one where Turkish nationalism, Turkey, plays a major role. Turks are leading the Arabs. So this is, as I was saying, not a marriage of convenience. I think it's much more ideologically indexed to who he is. He sees the role of Turkey as a regional superpower, and he has some rivalry with other members of the Middle East. It's not just about Islam. I mean, his rivalry with Saudi Arabia at at this point, his rivalry with Iran, a rivalry despite good military relations with Russia. But most importantly, I think the new uh, dynamics in Turkey that really indicate this nationalist turn is the fact that the Turkish military now seems to support Erdogan. And this is a paradigm change. It's what political scientists often call a realignment of Turkish politics, because for so long, Turkish politics was defined by tension between uh, civilians and the military. But after 2015, even earlier, you know, in 2013, with breakup of the alliance, divergence between Fetullah Gülen and Erdogan, Erdogan turned to the Turkish military as an ally. He went as far as saying that the whole Ergenekon investigation, which kind of emasculated the Turkish military, was an attempt to frame the officers, an attempt to frame the military. He was very much supportive of that, but he, that's the Machiavellian side of him. He went to the military and he said, I was always with you. Fethullah Gülen fooled me. And that began a kind of nationalist realignment, which culminated after the coup. And today you have this kind of strange situation where Eurasianism, neo-nationalism, Saljaluk and Erdogan are together. And it seems like a strange coalition, strange bedfellows, unless you pay attention to nationalism. The common denominator of this, this Eurasianism, neo nationalism, Erdogan's religious nationalism, is nationalism. And in this framework, you know, there can be lifestyle issues between secularists and uh, pious people in Turkey. One group drinks alcohol, the other one doesn't. Uh, One group has families with women who wear the headscarf, the other one doesn't. But these are, in my opinion, kind of superficial markers of secularism. They're not really serious. Secularists or pious conservatives or even Islamists in Turkey have one common denominator. And that's Turkish nationalism. And Erdogan opened shop in that market, in the market of Turkish nationalism, which means this a- alliance with MHP and the Turkish military is a different animal. It's a realignment, it's a paradigm change, and it makes Erdogan a much more powerful politician, which makes it impossible to solve the Kurdish problem, which is, in my opinion, Turkey's number one problem, which makes also impossible good relations with the West, because good relations with the West in Turkey requires some level of of solving the Kurdish problem and democratization. And it creates this kind of romantic bromance between Erdogan and Putin in the name of anti-Western, anti-NATO, anti-American shared feelings. Despite the fact that Turkey and Russia are rivals everywhere almost, they have this strong glue that holds the partnership, if you will, based on anti-Americanism. So that's what I wanted to write about in the context of nationalism in Turkey and how the West doesn't understand this and keeps focusing on Islam as the major problem.
0: There's a section in the book that I want to dig into a bit here because uh, you talk about the driving forces in Turkish politics being this state tradition that's highly illiberal and autocratic, quote. And what I found interesting in the book is that you actually trace this back further to the hierarchical or even absolutist nature of rulership in the Ottoman Empire and even back further to uh, the Seljuk states and even the pre-Islamic Turkish states of Central Asia. Quite an ambitious case to make. Could you just expand a bit on that point?
1: Yes, you're right that it's an ambitious thesis, especially for a non-historian like myself. But my point here is about state supremacy over religion. And there are very few countries in the Islamic world, Muslim world, where the straight t- tradition goes precedes the emergence of Islam. In the Arabian Peninsula, in the 6th century, Islam emerged as a religion and immediately established something that never existed in the Arabian Peninsula, which is a state. The traditional Weberian definition of a state, an entity that can monopolize the legitimate use of violence. That was the product of Islam, the creation of a state. Therefore, Islam made the kind of organizational, legal, political, military structure possible in the Arabian Peninsula. Turkey is an exception to that. To a certain degree, Iran is an exception to that too, because there existed a Turkish state tradition that goes back to Central Asia, Western China, where the state was there. There was an element of taxation. There was an element of military structure. What makes the state at the end of the day is the... The ability to tax and the ability to create an army and monopolize the use of violence. And Turks had that. They had nomadic states, but they were states nevertheless. They just had a different religion. It was shamanism. But the shamanistic tradition of the Turks of Central Asia changed as they moved westward and they they adopted Islam as a religion. But the state tradition remained very powerful. So that's the difference of Turkey, the deeply rooted state tradition of Turkey, where there is this patriarchal notion of the law and And when there's a clash between what the sultan or the patriarch, the ruler wants and what religion dictates, religion says, starting with the Seljuks, it's the political tradition that prevails. There's a criminal code that challenges the, the Islamic view, for instance. Uh, when you have a bunch of religious scholars challenging the sultan, the sultan can easily say, bring me other religious scholars that will basically justify what I'm saying. So this is the political tradition, the state tradition that is, in my opinion, superior, older, and more powerful, uh, and therefore prevailing over Islam. This creates a powerful political state tradition, a kind of state supremacy in the Turkish context, which is very difficult to challenge. Uh, Marxists sometimes, you know, call this, Karl Marx called it kind of Asian mode of production on the grounds that the state is the owner of the land also. It doesn't leave much room for the emergence of social, economic, political classes that can challenge the state. In other words, class warfare that defines Western history in in, in Europe is kind of missing in the Turkish context. The Ottoman Empire had a business community, merchants, kind of bourgeoisie, so to speak, but they were non-Muslims. And the emergence of the Turkish state, ironically, strengthened this Turkish tradition with social engineering, political engineering of Ataturk and even exacerbated it because the existing bourgeoisie, the existing business communities, non-Muslims, Greeks or Armenians were basically no longer there. I don't want to provoke uh, Turkish officialdom too much when I say the following. The modern Republic of Turkey is the product of two tragedies, the Armenian genocide and the de-Hellenization of Anatolia. So Turkey lost the kind of multicultural framework of the Ottoman Empire, the kind of business community, the a strong connection with the West. And it turned into this kind of resentful nationalist state that put really nationalism and nation building at the top of its agenda. And that's why also Turkish secularism was much more uh, rigid and intolerant of non-Muslims. It had a very strong anti-Greek, anti-Armenian dimension because of the history of the 19th century and the fact that Greeks and Armenians were perceived as invaders or you know fifth columns or communities that needed to be defeated or destroyed and sometimes annihilated. So that's the tragedy of the emergence of modern Turkey, the loss of this kind of cosmopolitan empire, the embarking on a nationalist project with a powerful state tradition symbolized by a charismatic new nationalist military hero turned statement, Ataturk. And that, to me, emphasizes the continuity of the Turkey state tradition. Missing in this is a powerful Turkish business community that can challenge the state. I may be too much of an economic determinist, but I believe that the chances of democratization depend to a certain degree of having a strong private sector that can challenge the powerful state and establish checks and balances, separation of powers. You know, this kind of liberalism, what we define as liberalism in the Western sense, requires a constitution that limits the power of the state. That constitution is missing in Turkey. The Turkish constitutional tradition harks back to really Central Asia, in my opinion, in the sense that it wants to create a strong state and protect the state from its citizens. It's not a about the protection of the citizens from the state which is the essence of liberalism therefore in Turkey you can end up with a situation where the powerful state can dominate everything a leader that represents the state can turn it into a tyranny of the majority and the the victim in this framework becomes the, the minorities the ideological ethnic it's very difficult to challenge this patriarchal notion of a powerful state when you don't have a very powerful business community class dynamics or even a a clash between uh, religion and state that was present in the context of Western Europe because the church and state were institutionally separate. That's not really present in the context of the Ottoman Empire, where state and religion are the same. The Ottoman Empire wants to dominate religion. Therefore, there is not much room for a conflict based on religion and state. There is not much conflict based on class. And the ethnic conflict resulted with the emergence of a powerful Turkish nation that to this day has a hard time coming to terms with 19th century and the tragedies that I outlined in the form of the Armenian Genocide and the Hellenization.
0: Now, chapter three of the book is a rebuttal of the Sunni versus Shia ancient hatreds thesis. So rather than being this permanent fixture of uh, Islamic societies, sectarianism actually emerges in specific contexts, particularly in the context of failed governance. So civil wars in Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Lebanon have emerged not because of ancient sectarian hatreds, but because of state collapse fueling sectarianization. Just open that one up for us. Make that case for us.
1: So the overarching theme in the book is that we should pay attention to nationalism and governance. For Turkey, I mentioned Erdogan is a nationalist and he's winning elections after elections, not because people are in love with his religious ideology or Islamism, uh, so to speak. But in fact, people are happy with the way he delivered social and economic services. So governance is a big part of why he won elections and he keeps winning. And he came to power in the wake of a major financial crisis in 2001 so his rise to power was defined by the economy and in my opinion his demise will also be defined by the economy as we have seen the first signals of it last year with the municipal elections where he lost uh, istanbul and ankara in addition to izmir and many other cities in turkey so islam does not explain the situation nationalism and governance does i apply the same framework the same lens of looking at nationalism and governance to the sunni shiite conflict where we tend to see a uh, religious conflict going back to the successionship question of the Prophet, that the Shiites and the Sunnis have been fighting since the 7th century. This goes back to the view that of the West, of the Sunni-Shiite problem in the Middle East as something that is not solvable, that is really intractable. Just like Islam, it is immutable. It's in their DNA. Sunnis and Shiites have been fighting forever. They're still fighting the 7th century. And I quote a lot of people saying that, you know, if we want to understand the Middle East and The Sunni Shiite conflict, we have to read what started in the seventh century and that they've been fighting ever since. I challenge this view by saying, look, this is not about religion. This is much more about structures, institutions, and nationalism. Again, my goal here is to debunk this conventional wisdom, this myth that you always had Sunnis and Shiites fighting each other. They did not fight each other all the time. Whenever you had powerful empires that were able to provide some level of governance, security, services, economic development. They gained legitimacy and Sunnis and Shiites learned to coexist. And it was always, again, a class issue where you had in the rural areas, in the more impoverished areas, always some divisions between Sunnis and Shiites. But in the urban middle class, upper middle class areas, uh, educated areas, you had intermarriages. Sunnis and Shiites lived together. Beirut, Baghdad, these were kind of cosmopolitan cities where intermarriages existed. So what's the key here? The key here is to understand that the sectarian divide in the Middle East, in places like Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Yemen, are products of Governance collapse. When you have a collapse of the state, when you have a collapse of governing institutions, you have chaos. And when you have chaos, you have violence. And when you have violence, people turn to their tribes, turn to their clans. So what we have is not a sectarian divide, but is a sectarianization of state collapse problems. That's why I pay attention in the book to four case studies Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and Yemen. I take these as case studies where we either have failed states or, or failing states or very fragile states where Saudi Arabia, Arab nationalism and Iran, the Persian nationalism are engaged in a geopolitical struggle they're using Sunnis and Sunni and Shiite identity, they're instrumentalizing this in a context where the governance is collapsing, uh, where state institutions are collapsing that's my attempt to say if you want to understand the problems in Iraq, the problems in Syria the problems in Lebanon or Yemen looking at Sunni-Shiite divergence is just the facade why do they fight it has not to to do with the 7th century, with religion. It has a lot to do with the collapse of governance and how Saudi Arabia and Iran are engaged in a geostrategic rivalry, geostrategic uh, struggle for supremacy in the region. In other words, this is about politics. This is about geostrategic struggle. This is about governance, much more than religion. And the West needs to stop referring to ancient tribal conflicts, in my opinion. This is lazy culturalism and should engage in a little bit more realistic, institutional, structural strategic analysis and understand the power of nationalism. To me, the irony in all is that the West has created nationalism, yet it doesn't understand the power of nationalism in non-Western contexts. This was a problem during the Cold War, where the United States was obsessed with communism and failed to see, because of its obsession with communism, that nationalism was often the driver of conflicts. For instance, Vietnam was primarily about nationalism. Mossadegh, the rise of Mossadegh in 1953, Iran, was about nationalism. But Britain and the United it's often used to kind of communist versus anti-communist framework. And now in the post 9 11 world, we often look at Islam, jihadism as, again, a kind of monolithic force at the expense of the diversity and differences within this Islamic bloc, based on nationalist rivalry. So the Sunni Shiite chapter of the book is where this issue of nationalism and governance is even more important than in the context of Turkey as an analytical failure for the West.
0: Now another chapter is on ISIS. Now some would say that ISIS is a clear-cut example. It's Islam taken to an extreme but internally logical conclusion. Why do you say that even ISIS can't be understood in religious cultural terms?
1: Well, you know, if you want to challenge the Western obsession with Islam, ISIS is the hardest case because it is the Islamic state. It claims to do whatever it does in the name of Islam. It's the same with al-Qaeda, but with ISIS, I mean, they're running a state based on their view of Islam. So how can is how can you be obsessed or overstate Islam when you're dealing with an entity that is called the Islamic state and that creates the caliphate? I begin by accepting that, look, there has to be some logical balance in the argument that we are overstating Islam. Islamic State cannot be understood without references to Islam. However, if we ask questions such as, why has the Islamic State emerged? What are they doing? How are they governing? What are the root causes of the problem? I don't think you can come up with Islam as the answer. Again, the Islamic State is a product of collapse of governance in Iraq and in Syria. The fact that the Sunnis in both Iraq and in Syria feel disempowered and therefore there is an element of sunni victimhood and nationalism a strong arab sense of sunni nationalism because there's a tendency to see the shiites as crypto iranians persians in fact isis in his documents often refer to the sassanids giving the name of the Persian pre-Islamic uh, Zoroastrian empire to Persia, saying they're not real Muslims. But primarily, it's about Sunni nationalism. And ISIS is a product of state collapse. And who was the vanguard of ISIS? Who were the main fighters of ISIS? How did they become such a formidable military force? Not because of foreign jihadist fighters coming from Europe. These were not well-qualified warriors. The real vanguard of ISIS were Ba'athist officers, Ba'athist generals and officers who came from Saddam's army, from the Republican guards, etc. Why would Ba'atist generals, who are supposed to be Arab nationalists of Sunni background, often more secular than religious, join a jihadist entity? My explanation in the book is it's about Sunni Arab identity. So even ISIS has a very strong Sunni Arab nationalism dimension in it, which can be explained by the fact that Baathist generals are joining the organization. Because it is about Sunni empowerment, Sunni Arab nationalism against Shiite Persian nationalism. So the role of nationalism is clear in ISIS. The role of governance collapse and the role of governance success is also clear because ISIS, unlike Al Qaeda, became a state and had to tax, had to govern, had to engage in conscription, had developed a bureaucracy and had to provide electricity and water and some infrastructure. It began governing. So you cannot understand ISIS by just focusing on the apocalyptic theological vision of the movement. There are so many books in Western bookstores about the apocalyptic vision of ISIS and how we can understand ideologically where they're coming from by reading this religious text. Well, I say, fine, read the religious text, but it's not going to help you understand the context, which is an economic, political, social context of nationalism and governance. So once again, I try to pay attention to institutional, political, economic dynamics, not to religion. And I also pay attention to who is joining ISIS, not just the Baatists, but also the foreign fighters. And let's talk about these foreign fighters. Who are they? They're coming from Europe. They're coming from Tunisia. They're Coming from the region, but oftentimes are they really people who are joining ISIS because they want to join a religious movement? According to many analysts and research, the foreign fighters who came from Europe are second generation Muslim immigrants in Europe who are not very religious. They often have a kind of petty crime background. Their radicalization occurs in jail. So it's not about really a Islamic radicalism scenario. They are radicalized. They are angry, resentful. They have identity problems. They have social economic problems. They have sometimes psychological problems. And I take Olivier Roy here, the French scholar of political Islam, as my guide rather than And Gilles Capel, who is the other viewpoint of Islam and radicalization, Olivier Roy argues that we need to pay attention to the context and not just to Islam as a religion, but to how Muslims look at Islam and how the second generation of Muslims are often uprooted from Islamic traditions. And they basically are rebels looking for a cause. They're radicalized individuals, and what we're witnessing is not a uh, radicalization of Islam, but it's an Islamization of already existing radicalism. And that's an ongoing kind of intellectual debate in France between Michel Capelle and Olivier Roa. It's a contentious one, and I'm clearly here in the Olivier Roa camp, which sees the social, economics, but also psychological dimension of an uprooted Muslim community that is looking for an identity. And I also look at why people are joining from Tunisia. I look at relative deprivation, at the gap between opportunities and expectations rather than pure deprivation. It's not about poverty. These are often middle-class people who are joining. They, they're they basically looking for meaning. They're looking for belonging. They're looking for not just religion, but some standing in society, some prestige. And there is an element of relative deprivation here, not absolute deprivation. Relative deprivation is about the middle class that develops expectations. expectations, aspirations, which are often unfulfilled. I look at the Arab Spring and I look at political Islam partly as relative deprivation. It's the gap between opportunities and expectations. This region, the Middle East, has very high expectations of itself, high aspirations, and they're unfulfilled. So to understand the region requires paying attention to also these kind of socioeconomic dynamics of relative deprivation of the Arab youth, how frustrated they are. And there are a bunch of frustrated achievers in ISIS. These are like people who have studied engineering, who are unemployed, who have space some racism, maybe, who have turned radical. They are achievers which turned radical and resentful because their dreams were unfulfilled. So I don't want to create this notion that terrorism is about, you know, poverty and lack of education. It's about middle-class phenomena. And when you look at the people joining ISIS, they're often frustrated achievers, middle-class, not very religious, but looking for social, political, cultural, psychological meaning and standing in society.
0: Now finally, you're in Washington at present and you often in your work focus on Turkey-US relations, which have been quite rocky recently I think it's fair to say, and often these narratives that we're talking about of Islam versus secularism get shoehorned into discussions of that relationship, sometimes in a rather unhealthy way. Uh, We're sitting here Joe Biden is set to take office soon, uh, in the middle of this very stormy period in Turkey-US relations. Just wondered if you could project ahead, um, are you optimistic or pessimistic About the many challenges ahead in this relationship?
1: Biden is inheriting a very difficult situation from Trump at home. with the pandemic uh, and the economy. So I don't think he will have a lot of time to devote to foreign policy other than the main challenges of Iran, China, North Korea and Russia. Uh, so Turkey will have to be a, man, a a problem that the United States will try to manage with some combination of coercive diplomacy and uh, limited engagement. There is a realization in Washington increasingly that Turkey is no longer this ally that we fantasized once as staunch NATO, secular, democratic there's increasingly a more realistic realization uh understanding of turkey that this is a a country that will always have its regional domestic agenda that will diverge from the eu and the united states mainly because of the kurdish problem the kurdish problem has become now in my opinion the driver of turkish american relations the reason why turkey bought s400s from russia the reason why turkey and the united states are in such a difficult position has a lot to do with syria and Syria has a lot to do with the Kurdish conflict. What I mean is that until Syria exploded, Turkey and the United States could fancy a world where they just differ on threat perception. They just differ on analyzing what terrorism is about. The U.S. focused on jihadist terrorism. Turkey focused on Kurdish terrorism. There was still a modus vivendi and an attempts to work together. Syria changed all that and turned into a kind of graveyard for Turkish-American relations because in Syria, the United States decided to partner up with what Turkey considers an existential threat. The PKK, and let's not kid ourselves, the United States partnered up with the PKK in Syria. The YPGPYD is the PKK, and Turkey partnered up with jihadist forces against the Kurds and against the regime of Bashar Assad. So you no longer, no longer had in Syria this divergence of threat perception, but you had two former allies actively engaged in supporting each other's existential enemies: the United States supporting the PKK in the name of fighting ISIS, and Turkey supporting radical Islamists in the name of fighting the Kurds and the regime. This is not a situation you can solve with more dialogue, with better understanding of each other. So whenever people say, you know, Turkey and the United States needs to sit down and talk about common interests. In Syria, we have seen that it doesn't work that way. Once you partner up with each other's existential threats, Turkey turns to Russia for help. And Russia has conditions. Putin is skillfully playing Turkey as the weakest link in NATO. And the United States is unable to really give up the Kurds because because they're the most effective force against ISIS. And Turkey does not take ISIS as seriously as it does Kurdish terrorism. So this is at the heart of the Turkish-American problem today. The Kurds are perceived in Washington, the YPG, the Syrian Kurds especially, as heroes that were instrumental in fighting ISIS and in winning this war against ISIS in the conquest of Raqqa. Especially CENTCOM, Pentagon, which was at the backbone of the Turkish-American partnership, has turned very pro-Kurdish. The US Congress has become very pro-Kurdish. This is a paradigm change. The Kurdish problem now defines Turkish-American relations. So the S-400 is a kind of symptom, a result of, not the cause, of this Turkish-American divergence over the Kurdish problem over Syria. And I'm not very optimistic because unless Turkey finds a solution to its partnership with Russia and the S-400 issue, the United States will continue on sanctions. The sanctions will become even stronger if Turkey- Turkey decides to buy fifth-generation aircraft from the Russians instead of F-35s. So as Turkey and Russia continue their cooperation, which I think Putin is willing to do so, and Erdogan is unable to say no to Putin for many reasons, because Putin has more leverage in Syria with Turkey, and Putin has more leverage over the Turkish economy, and in my opinion, over what happened on the 15th of July, the failed coup, uh, which was a paradigm changing event in Turkey. It's very difficult for Erdogan really to challenge Putin. but Erdogan Erdogan always believes that he can manage the relations with the United States. Turkish economy, he believes, does not depend that much on the United States, as long as the United States does not decide to really paralyze the Turkish economy with very heavy financial sanctions that may impact the Turkish banking and finance sector. We're not there yet, but if Turkey continues on a path of military acquisitions from Russia, there will be harsher sanctions. And this will only strengthen Turkey's Eurasianist nationalist resentful frustration from not not just the United States, but also Europe. And this doesn't bode well for the future of Turkish democracy. And finally, I want to say a word about the Turkish opposition, the CHP. The fact that they were not able to criticize Erdogan on the S-400 issue shows how powerful is nationalism in Turkey. The CHP, the opposition in Turkey, if even the CHP is unable to challenge this, Erdogan is on strong ground in foreign policy. I think he can even win another election with these nationalist slogans because the the CHP is unable to really challenge this kind of nationalist foreign policy. The only way the the CHP can challenge Erdogan is the economy now. And if Erdogan manages to create a sense of success with a vaccine that will come in the summer, and a kind of nationalist frustration against the United States, with sanctions that are now implemented, but that are not obviously that strong, Erdogan may call early elections this summer and manage to win another presidential term. And if he manages to shut down the Kurdish party, the HDP, he can even establish a parliamentary majority in coalition with the MHP, AKP so I don't think things are going well in Turkey at the foreign policy level and they may be going worse, even worse at the domestic level. I'm sorry to end on this pessimistic note but I'm quite pessimistic about the near term in Turkey
0: Well there we go, a pessimistic start to 2021 but I dare say a realistic one Ömer Tashpinar, there, many thanks to him for joining for episode number 132 Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by becoming a member on Patreon. Membership gets you transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3 or above per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use, follow via Twitter or like our Facebook page, and I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to check out Friends of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap, Turkey Recap is an email newsletter put together by journalists Razier Akkoc and Diego Cupolo. It's a very useful weekly package that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, arriving in your email inbox every Thursday. Turkey Recap also includes links to interesting articles as well as some excellent puns. Just go to turkeyrecap.com to find out how to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Dünyayı, gezdim dolaştım, anladım ki...